Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast exploring the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm Patton McDowell, and I'm your host and happy to bring you a new set of topics and resources that will help guide you along your professional development path. I had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Hal Lewis, and this was recorded prior to the current coronavirus adventures that we all are dealing with, but I hope it offers, and I'm confident it will offer, uh, a healthy distraction as you are pondering your professional development journey, and Hal certainly has uh, a multitude of resources and advice to offer. Hal's career has spanned more than three decades, and he's a highly regarded nonprofit executive. He has been a professor of leadership at multiple universities, including the University of Cincinnati, University of Illinois in Chicago. Uh, He has been an executive director and development VP at the American Cancer Society, the Jewish Federation in Columbus, Ohio, and other organizations that you can certainly look at as we will link to his uh, webpage and other resources throughout this uh, program. Now, why I'm excited about this episode is that Hal and I dove right into some of the most pressing topics and I think important ones for you as a nonprofit leader. Number one, we talked about what can you do to more effectively attract and retain first-rate nonprofit professionals. What do you need to learn as an agent that is hiring someone And what do you need to know as someone who hopes to be hired? Uh, And we talk about both sides of that coin. Secondly, we talk about the ever-important and complex relationship uh, with your board. Uh, So if you're an executive director now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, If you're aspiring to be an executive director, you're going to need to understand the unique dynamics of board relationships in the nonprofit sector. And then Hal has some fantastic ideas about building a collaborative community uh, within your organization and, of course, outside your organization with other nonprofits that are doing work like yours. And how can you bring all these resources together to ultimately achieve the mission that you are passionate about? I'm certain you're going to find lots of takeaways from this discussion So don't forget to check out the show notes on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Hal Lewis. Hal, thank you for joining me on the path. Well, it's a a real thrill, and I'm looking forward to our conversation, Patton. Hal, your journey has been impressive in, in different aspects of nonprofit and leadership. And so my first question, as you might imagine, is tell us, how did you get on the nonprofit path? Um, well, actually, uh, of all the things you asked me to think about, uh, that's been the most difficult. Wow. Uh, because uh, I'd love to tell you that um, you know, one night uh, as I was uh, sleeping, I had a vision <laughs> and uh, that vision compelled me to uh, engage in the social sector and to do good things and uh, um, and uh, to grow personally and professionally and then to work with others in the 501c3 sector. But the truth is, uh, that's not how it happened at all. It's not exactly glamorous. Um, and I, I, I think, I'll be interested to know what you think, I think my experience is pretty typical. I like to say, 
I backed into a career in nonprofit. That's fair. I didn't wake up one day and say, I'd like to be, or I'd like to do. I was um, uh, never quite sure of a career path when I was younger. Um, And I just, uh, first in college and then after college, uh, did some uh, youth work, working with programmatics, with uh, informal education, with adolescents, and um, as is often the case in our business writ large, um, if you have uh, stick-to-itiveness and presumably some level of skill, there are opportunities and doors that open particularly, and I'm sure this is an issue we may talk about, particularly if you're willing to um, do what needs to be done to increase responsibilities, work longer, harder. In some cases, I think that the ugly truth is we have, some of us have to be willing to move, you know, change places geographically. But um, over a career that's now been uh, uh, more than three decades, I have, um, I'm proud to say, remained in the nonprofit arena from the very beginning. Uh, At first, as I said, more by happenstance than by design. But at some point, uh, it became clear to me that uh, I loved what I was doing. I felt, uh, as is true for many of us in the for-profit or non, uh, in the for-profit or not-for-profit, arena that I was making a difference. Uh, I felt that I was acquiring skills and, uh, you know, increasing my responsibility and correspondingly my, uh, my earning capacity, so on and so forth. And so as when I look back at it, uh, it all followed a very logical path of growing and acquiring more skill sets and taking on more responsibility. But I cannot say, uh, you know, it was all part of some grand design. It happened. (laughs) I'm proud of it. I tried to make the most of it. I learned from a whole bunch of people who were giving and willing along the way. Um, So that's my story, Pat. It's a good one. And I think reassuring how, frankly, a lot of our listeners obviously are listening in because they're now thinking about nonprofit. But you certainly demonstrate you don't have to have some master vision. Uh, as a young person, you can come at this. And, and I'm guessing you would agree all of your cumulative experiences helped you do what you do now and has to have positively affected that. Absolutely. I don't know how much we'll get into this, but I would say to put a finer point on the uh, on what you just said about my, who I am today as being the result of cumulative experience, I would say uh, quite forthrightly that includes the failures as well as the successes uh, the good bosses and the miserable ones, um, the um, trial and error, um, just the totality of the experience has added to, I think, not only what I have done and who I am, but what I try to pass on to others as a mentor and a coach. It's great advice. And that's reassuring again that no matter what the type of experience, you can benefit from it or learn from it, even if it's painful in the current setting. Um, Education, I know, higher education in particular, you have been uh, great in in leadership positions. Other sectors, 
that you have um, worked in, how as well as education? Education, arts and culture, um, and for a little while, uh, the voluntary health sector, um, American Cancer Society in particular when I was younger, um, some faith-based communal work as well. So my kids joke that um, I, I could never keep a job, but in point of fact, <laughs> um, I was always blessed to make a move when it felt right for me or when the opportunities were there. But I am part of what I'm the most proud about, Patton, is that I have I've worked in a variety of disciplines within the the nonprofit sector writ large. And that's given me an exposure to uh to a diversity of missions, but also on a very pragmatic level to very different way organizations approach fundraising, how they work with boards. A, you know, not every organization does direct mail. Not every organization does events. Not every organization does major gifts or endowments, legacy giving. And so one of the things for which I am most grateful uh, in the course of this diverse career is that I've acquired a a fairly good set of skills rather than being sort of uh, pigeonholed or relegated only to one aspect of what we think of as nonprofit work. It's well put. And I could not agree more. And like you, I am proud of, uh, you know, a decade in higher education, but I've learned so much from healthcare and arts and culture and faith community. And uh, you uh, articulated that very well. We can learn from the broader sector in such a positive way. And that's what I've tried to continue to do, uh, like you in coaching and consulting. But speaking of your coaching, consulting, your writing, your speaking, um, how I ask of all my guests, how do you stay organized with the multifaceted activities that you continue to pursue? Um, (laughs) Yeah, because it would be great if it were just a single silver bullet answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still looking for that. Yes, it's yes, a hard, yes. hard one. Yeah, I join you in that search. I mean, I, there there are things that work for me. I, I mean, I have to say, and well, I have to say, I work hard. <laughs> I mean, to yeah, starts begin, with that. Starts with begin, that. To begin with, and that's not to break my arm, patting myself on the back. There are plenty of people who work hard much harder than I do and struggle economically. And so this is not about um, any kind of condescending attitude that, you know, just if you're willing to work hard, it'll all fall into place. That's not what I'm suggesting. But in terms of how I stay organized, I work hard. Um, I'm up early I and I'm up late and I, um, <clears throat> and I, um, it takes full days sometimes um, and sometimes weekends to accomplish uh, the many things you were kind enough to point out that fill my days. Client work is an important piece of that. My own writing and research is an important piece of that. Uh, Special projects. Um, so, um, you know, when I stepped down from my last full-time position as the president and CEO of Spurtis College in Chicago, everybody said, what are you going to do with your free time? <laughs> and um, and the, the truth is, 
it's a different kind of responsibility when you're no longer the CEO, but it's not a matter of working any, any less in terms of the hours. So here are a couple of things that work for me. Um, and I say this with a great deal of humility because I'm smart enough or I've learned over the years to know that uh, what works for me doesn't always work for someone else. I'm a sure. neat, I'm a neat desk kind of person. Um, uh, almost at any given point in the day or night, my desk is organized. Some people are the exact opposite. And what I've learned over the years is we can both be effective. Indeed. We both get, get things done. So I, I try not to, uh, to judge, uh, different styles. For me, I am a neat desk guy. Um, I have piles that I can identify that are organized. I have files that I've worked hard to organize and then periodically reorganize. I'm a list guy. Um, I have a variety of uh, stickies. Did we, was there life before stickies? I'm not <laughs> Not sure. that I'm aware of. Not right. that I'm aware of. <laughs> right. But I have a variety of stickies. Uh, and then I have some stickies for my stickies to make sure I <laughs> have a plan for all of them. And that's one thing. The most significant thing I've learned about being organized, and, and I learned this myself long before I taught it to others, um, is a simple rule that for me uh, is expressed with the phrase, put people first. Put people first. There are no shortage of papers to be filled out or forms to be completed or um, uh, administrative things to focus on. But for me, the key to my staying organized is that I put people first. So if there's a client that needs me right away, even if I were going to do something else uh, of a more administrative nature, I put people first. Nice. Um, if 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 um, there's in a in a more traditional nonprofit context where I spent a lot of my years, as I know uh, was true for you as well, uh, if a donor was on the phone, hey, it didn't really matter that I was filling out paperwork or working on uh, seating arrangements for an event. Exactly. The donor came. The donor came first. When I began supervising staff and my staff past staff and current colleagues would still tell you this to this day. If they needed me, the rule was I don't go home before getting back to them. Now, it may be later in the day, Sure. but, but put people first was an important organizing principle when I was working in a conventional uh, not-for-profit organization. And it's certainly true now that I'm uh, running my own executive coaching and organizational consulting practice. Great so advice. Be between lists, just lists in general, and and putting people first, uh, for me, those have been two seminal underlying premises that have kept me, uh, uh, I think, effective and efficient and and productive. Great rules to live by. Certainly, you've responded very well to my productivity question, which I know is sometimes an impossible question for any of us to answer, but I like the way you approach it. And indeed, it has uh, allowed you to be successful in many respects. Uh, and it doesn't, that mean, and well, it doesn't mean that I don't keep working on it. <laughs> exactly. Right? Because this is, this is an iterative process. You don't do this once. You keep Good. doing it. 
that's a great way to put it. And we all need to be lifelong learners in that uh, topic area, don't we? Absolutely. Um, well, I, as I ponder this conversation, you have a, a lot of things you've written about, you speak about, you coach about. I thought there were three particular headlines that I would like to kind of get your insight and advice on. And, and they're topics I know our listeners are interested in, those that are current leaders or aspiring to be nonprofit leaders. Mm-hmm. And let's start with the first one. You, you make a point in several of your published and video material about the importance of attracting and retaining first-rate professionals. And I could not agree more in this era of turnover in the nonprofit sector. Why is this so important? I, I guess it's evident why it's so important, but let's talk about what are the things you counsel sure. around attracting and retaining first-rate professionals? Uh, thank you for putting that first, Patton, because I think uh, it is first. It's not the only thing, and there are other principles that will emanate from this, but um, I think in all manners of industry, uh, for-profit as well as not-for-profit, attracting and retaining first-rate professionals is critical. We hear a lot of uh, emphasis nowadays on creating great places to work. Um, as career nonprofit professionals, you and I both know a couple of things. Uh, we don't pay huge salaries. Um, it's often a challenge sometimes to um, encourage, encourage people to think about the social sector, the educational arena when uh, they have uh, the, the belief that they can make a lot more money and be more successful in another arena. So our work is not for everyone. But right. what I know for sure, and I know you agree, is that we won't be successful um, without first-rate professionals. Do we need strong boards? Absolutely. Do we need engaged donors? That's self-evident. Right. But, but first and foremost, we need top-notch professionals. And, 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 and the reason that's so important is because we in the nonprofit arena are in the impact business. I, I think it's important to say again, the impact business. We measure our success by understanding the impact we have, whether as social service agencies, as arts and cultural organizations, as health organizations, as educational institutions. It's the impact. We don't sell widgets, Patton. Yep, yep. We don't manufacture iPhone 11s. We cannot, <laughs> right. we cannot as easily as some industries uh, plot on a, uh, a spreadsheet um, our effectiveness or productivity. We are in the impact business, and therefore we need colleagues who are similarly committed to having the impact, whether that, again, is a literacy program, a health program, across the board of, of, of nonprofit. No matter what sector, right? That, Every sector that needs is, that. That is right. Um, and that's why I think some of these things, though, are conversations about nonprofit, I think spills over quite clearly to the for-profit arena as well. Um, if we do not have that, then there's one other say. I want to uh, one other thing I want to say about this issue in particular, and it's uh, it's the underside. But I think we need to be clear. 
<clears throat> for many years, and I fear even still today, there are people who look at the women and men who work in nonprofit organizations and think of them as not quite as effective as people who work in the so-called, quote, real world. Oh, exactly. I, I cannot tell you. One of the most disturbing things that ever happened to me as a young professional, uh, as a fundraiser in a voluntary health organization, was when a volunteer met with me. And after the, the meeting um, itself, she turned to me and said, you're so good. Why are you a nonprofit? Ouch. And though I know she meant that as a compliment, I, I think in retrospect, that has become one of the, the banners that I have taken into this work all along, right? We cannot live in a world that is as complicated as ours, where we need to have the impact we want to have if we do not have first-rate professionals. I tell graduate students and my, my coaching clients, we need to be every bit as good, as productive, as effective, as sophisticated as our for-profit analogs. Yeah, well you put. You, you wouldn't hire an attorney or an accountant that you thought was doing half-baked work. We cannot be that. In fact, I would say we have a special obligation to not only be sophisticated in manners of technology and best practices, but to demonstrate a commitment that is, of course, a reflection of our mission, but is also reflective of our efficiency, effectiveness, and productivity. We cannot afford as a system, as an individual organization, to settle for anything other than excellence in our professional staff. Let me, if I can interrupt, but only to agree with you and amen to what you just said. I remember a similar story, Hal, as I started work for the Special Olympics organization right out of college. And I had similar reactions from friends and family who, in essence, were patting me on the head, say, well, good for you that you're doing this kind of cute nonprofit work. But literally, I had the quote more than once, when are you going to get a real job? And it sounds sure. to me, Hal, like exactly. you're saying, this is a real job. Let's make sure it is uh, evident to others. Yeah. And, and, and while there is work to be done with our donors, our philanthropists, our board members who need to understand the realities of what it means to be a not-for-profit executive, I also think we have responsibilities, uh, those of us who are hiring, training. Um, we cannot. We cannot expect to command the respect of our, uh, of our corporate uh, analogs, our corporate partners uh, or equivalents, if we are also not willing to work that hard, to be that talented, uh, good enough can never be good enough yep. in our yep. sector. The stakes are too high. Uh, well put. And so how do we create a culture that, that encourages and attracts the kind of talent you are describing? Uh, have you found in your experience certain tips or things that you did to literally attract and retain the kind of talent you describe. Pat, I'm sure you're familiar with Daniel Pink's book, Drive. Indeed. Um, and, and, and so I think this is a, a, it's not written for nonprofits, but I think it's a critical reminder that most people are driven 
uh, only partly by money or benefits um, or a nice office. For most people, what makes us work at maximum capacity is what Pink calls autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Yep, good point. And I would say we each, those of us who are running organizations or coaching, we have a responsibility to ask ourselves, are we building an organization in which employees have autonomy, that is, uh, we're not micromanaging them, neither we nor our board members, um, but they have freedom to experiment, to fail, to get better. Mastery, are we in fact growing as professionals? I don't know about you, but um, I've learned so much in each job, again, as I mentioned, right. from the things I've done well and the things I haven't done so well. And purpose, do I have a sense that I am um, doing something beyond my own economic interests, that is the the impact that I was talking about before. So for me, creating organizations that follow Pink's autonomy, mastery, purpose paradigm is an important uh, first start. That's I also want to say, and I hope this doesn't get me or more importantly you in any trouble, <laughs> I, I, I do think we need to be concerned about compensation. Are we treating our employees fairly? Yes. Um, are we competitive? both in terms of the salaries, but also benefits. Are we enlightened when it comes to um, family policies, policies of family leave, maternity and paternity? Are we competitive when it comes to flex time or collaborative working? So I don't, in, in beginning with uh, Pink's autonomy, mastery, purpose, I don't mean to diminish the, uh, the the significance of the more pragmatic, the more um, substantive salary right. benefit question. But I do think we need to be doing that as well. Creating an environment in which professionals feel that they are fulfilled and learning and growing um, is a really important first step to how do we attract and retain first-rate professionals. Uh, it's, I know you've seen this too. It shocks me how many organizations, including large ones, who don't conduct annual personnel reviews. That's right. Seriously? I mean, this is the 21st century. Um, uh, employees who we wish to value and retain need to know how they're doing. They need to get a sense of their performance. Now, we could have a long conversation, which we won't do today. On just on the, that, right. That's the essence of an effective performance review, but just having that is another, I mean, it's a, I know it's a very specific example, but it's the kind of things not-for-profit organizations don't always do well, and yet we talk about wanting to attract and retain first-rate professionals. There are best practices out there that we can learn from and implement. Excellent advice. You frame that beautifully, and I'm, I'm a fan of Pink as well. In fact, I just gave my son that exact book, Al, Drive, because I think it has the kind of impact on any, well, professional at any level for him, a young professional. But uh, great things to think about in terms of setting the kind of stage and the culture, as well as not moving or not missing out on the pragmatic side 
and not totally having to apologize right. for compensation and things like that. Um, Agreed totally. Well, speaking of a group, though, that perhaps doesn't always understand this, and I'm curious about your perception of the board and many of our colleagues, as you know, uh, executive directors, I find often, sadly, fall in one of two camps. Either my board's driving me crazy because they micromanage me, or my board is disengaged. And so I'm, I'm alone, really, as an executive director. But I'm curious, is that your observation of many of the executives and their boards? And let's talk about partnering yep. with your board in an effective manner. So um, I, I, would, uh, I would agree uh, completely with your uh, assessment. I would say, in my experience, both as a practitioner and as an academic, as someone who um, toiled in those vineyards for many years and is now uh, working with executives as, uh, as an executive coach, right. I do not think there is any bigger issue than navigating the tempestuous waters of boards and executives that has to be dealt with in our sector. Um, nobody will succeed. If somebody is listening uh, and they've just taken a, a nonprofit job, maybe they're fundraising, maybe they're doing some planning, um, back of the house, front of the house, uh, their ability, if they wish, to rise through the ranks and to someday run a nonprofit organization is directly dependent upon their ability to work with boards in an effective, meaningful uh, way. Absolutely. And, and that takes and requires a number of things. To begin with, we need to be absolutely clear. And Pat and I have to tell you, I probably do more of this kind of training than any other. We need to be absolutely clear, what does it mean to be a nonprofit board member? I appreciate Mr. Jones or Ms. Smith, who has a sort of a vague sense that they wanna give back and that they wanna make a contribution literally and figuratively, but to sit as a member of a nonprofit governance entity, a board, requires more than just good intention. People, and I, I mean no disrespect to Absolutely. people with good, with good intention, but people need to understand what does it mean to be a nonprofit board member, just as executives need to understand what their roles are and are not, how management and governance work together so that both can bring effective leadership to the table of communal discourse, we need to understand roles and responsibilities. We need to understand best practices. We need to create a context in which to manage conflict, something we, we, we're very nervous about. We'd rather avoid it. Right. Executive, executives say, well, I can just wait out that tough board chair or board people can say, well, we're just going to fire the CEO and get somebody who does it the way we want it done better. That right. is not effective communication and right. certainly not effectively managing a conflict. So there are a lot of things that I think we can do, but I agree with you. Uh, getting this right is the single most important component. I would say, honestly, it's important to have a good website. It's important to have a good campaign plan, but more than anything else, 
we need to get this right at every level of uh, the philanthropic nonprofit sector. Well put. And I don't mean to oversimplify it, Hal, but it seems that you're saying literally the job description, if you will, for the board member is often the missing element or they're just not clear on what they're supposed to do. And we as staff perhaps are equally guilty of not encouraging some definition as to their role. Well, the clarification of roles and responsibilities is where we start. I don't think that's all of it. And I know you're not suggesting that. There's a lot of nuance. Each circumstance is required. But here's what, what we know happens. And it's a, if we were going to write a handbook for how to do this wrong, we would probably follow the practice we see in many nonprofits today, which is with each new board chair or president titles change, the rules change. With each new executive, the rules change. Interesting. I'm not saying that organizations don't evolve and change over time, but an organization needs a healthy, functional subculture in which one board chair replaces another board chair, but the way you work with staff doesn't change overnight because there are roles and responsibilities and clarity regarding boundaries. There's a system for how we communicate. And as I suggested, there are ways in which we manage conflict. If this is like a weather vane that changes direction every time we have a new administration, either right, right. professional, then it is no wonder that we are, and here's what troubles me, we are losing talented volunteers who say, I don't want to give my time to an organization when I'm either uh, not needed or when they they don't appreciate what I'm doing. At the same time, we are losing the best and the brightest among our colleagues in many cases who can no longer make peace with the kind of micromanagement that defines their work. I believe the best way to avoid this communal brain drain on both the volunteer and the professional side is to articulate these principles, talk them through, and this is uh, art, not science. There are best practice principles, right? But, but this is art, not science. We change. Technology has changed the way we do business with our boards and vice versa. But this means that it's an ongoing conversation. So as an executive director struggling with this, I, I take it you would advise it. Sometimes you might need a full stop because I, I agree with you. Uh, executive directors are struggling with this. The, the, every time the wind blows differently or a new board leader comes in, the rules change. Right. Right. Obviously, we have to avoid that. But are there, uh, is there advice you offer an executive director? Is it literally stop, let's reconvene as a leadership team and board to make sure we're on the same page? Um. Well, well, often that is the case. I know this is going to sound a little uh, self-serving, but one of the reasons executive directors have coaches, and increasingly I've been doing coaching with board members as well, is to begin to unpack what healthy management governance relationships look like. There are best practices, but as you know better than most, um, best practices only work in the best case scenario, right? We, we live right, in the real right. world. We live in the real world. And so nuance matters. Converse, the ability to communicate matters. 
So yes, I believe, and there are some general principles. I mean, I know you're familiar with this patent, but perhaps others are not. There's uh, something that still exists on the books known as Carver Policy Governance, which is an, a, the quintessential articulation of the role of boards and the role of executives in 501c3 organizations. Yep. You, can, you can Google Carver Policy Governance. I think their work is available at reasonable prices. These are foundational principles. They don't cover every contingency. And, you know, they're a bit dated today because of the impact of technology, but they are good jumping off points. And again, self-serving as I know this will, will sound, this I recommend that people need coaches, both, both, for, for, both for CEOs or aspiring CEOs and increasingly for board, uh, the highest ranking board member, either president or chairman, depending upon the title. Magic, real magic can happen, Patton, uh, where we can have the impact that we talked about before. Really happens when, when volunteers and professionals work together as partners. It doesn't mean you do the same thing. It doesn't mean you always agree on things. In fact, the opposite. But you create a context in which for this to happen, magic follows. Uh, it's so well put. And I'm fascinated by the concept of board coaching. It seems to me a lot of times board members, in essence, assigning blame to the staff, will say, well, the staff needs coaching. But your point is a lot of board members, well as intentioned as they are, don't fully understand or appreciate the role they're supposed to play. Is that, I guess, some are enlightened enough to seek out your coaching, but what is the nature of your coaching with board members like? It, it's often in partnership with an executive and may come a little further down the road. I've had new board members who are familiar with my work just call me and we work in parallel right. for a while. And I'm not, again, I, I, I don't want to overstate this. You know, I'm a straight shooting sort of guy. It's a hard sell. As you know, coaching and nonprofit work in general is a hard sell. Oh, we don't want to spend contributed dollars to grow our staff. They should already know these things. Why invest in professional development? All we really need them to be doing is raising money. <laughs> right. um, and right. so that's a challenge even with, CEOs or uh, numbers two, you know, aspiring CEOs. It's a bigger problem with, with, with volunteer leaders. But I can tell you that um, we're not going to fix this, right? right. If, the, if the only thing you need to be the chairman of a nonprofit board is a, a desire and a checkbook, then that's not good business. You wouldn't behave that way in your corporate organization at the highest levels of the most sophisticated for-profit organizations, people get trained, including people who have long-held positions. There is an unfortunate myth that says, well, um, I, I want to do this. I care about the organization. I'm generous. Uh, that's all I need. Right. No, that's not all we need. Any more than uh, a woman or man who rises to the top of an organization can say, well, I care passionately about the organization that prepares me to run it. That's not true either. Absolutely right. We should not accept that logic on the nonprofit side because none of them would on their 
for-profit side. And it's funny how you and I both have seen that. It seems talented corporate professionals take off that hat when they move into their nonprofit <laughs> board role, don't they? And it's like, why, why did you leave that at the door? <laughs> we need we need you to apply the same uh, level of, of excellence. I once uh, I once gave a rather uh, controversial, provocative uh, presentation to a group of uh, nonprofit volunteer and professional leaders, in which I coined the term, uh, an acronym, and I, I titled the presentation "Beware of the Blob." of the blab syndrome. Blab. Uh, I want to hear this. Be like a business. B-L-A-B, be like a business. Beware the blab syndrome. Because I'm sure you've heard it and many of our listeners have heard it countless times. If only we ran things like a business around here, <laughs> we'd be better off. Right. right? Um, and I say, amen to that. I'm willing to do that, which means... Board members need to show up. They need to be engaged. We need to be serious about professional development. We need to pay attention to succession planning. We need to invest in training. You want to be like a business? I'm ready to do that with you. <laughs> but That's this, excellent. But this fiction that has often informed some, not all, some nonprofit organizations, which is, uh, all we need to do is take an, a, a CFO from a major corporation and a marketing person from a PR firm and drop them in without any training into the work of nonprofits in general. Um, you know, we know what happens. We have, we have unhappy volunteer leaders and unhappy professionals in that case. Yes. Well put. Um, just as you have, uh, perfectly articulated topics one and two we've talked about attracting talent which as you say is is kind of a priority in our nonprofit sector you've unpacked the dynamic of board relations what it is or should be and often is not uh, let's move to your third headline how a good one you talk about in several of your communications the importance of building a collaborative community why don't you Explain that and what you mean in the context of nonprofit leadership. Sure. And thank you, Penn, because you have built a, um, a sequencing here that I hope is intuitive for the listeners and, and certainly makes a good deal of sense. Um, when I speak about building a collaborative uh, community, it's a, it's a pretty simple premise. None of us is as smart as all of us. Indeed. And so what that means is just as volunteers and professionals, board members and employees bring different sets of talents and perspectives to the table, um, that's how we should be running all of our organizations. We have to be prepared, whether we're the executive or the chairman of the board or anywhere in between, to tap into the talents and perspectives of others, if all we want are clones, yes people, uh, then we have pretty much said we don't want to grow, we want to limit our potential, we don't want to achieve the full impact that we purport to care about. To me, one of the greatest teachers of, of leadership, uh, who actually wrote both about the nonprofit world and the for-profit world, was the late Peter Drucker. 
Right. Peter Drucker famously said, if you are the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. This, do, this does not mean, as you and I have both experienced over our careers, that we're not sometimes the smartest person in the room, <laughs> right? Occasionally, are, hopefully, right? That there are times when we know a good deal about a particular issue than others. But if we do not capitalize on the opportunity to bring a diversity of people around the table, specifically with perspectives other than our own, if we, if we knee jerk to a single response or the functional equivalent, which is how many times have you been in a meeting when the person at the head of the table has said, okay, we have two choices. I always want to raise my hand and say, well, do we have a third maybe? Exactly. A fourth, right? Being a force multiplier when it comes to good ideas can only happen when we are willing to build the collaborative community to surround ourselves by people who have other points of view. This allows us to, um, to learn from others, to ask good and hard questions, and frankly, as professionals, it is an enormously liberating and freeing experience when we say, I don't have all the answers. Not only do I not have all the answers, but I don't need to have all the answers. What I need to be, again, to, to paraphrase Peter Drucker, who said in the 21st century, the leader is less often the expert and more often the convener of experts. Interesting. And in my career, both as a, as a nonprofit CEO and as an executive coach, I have found this to be so true. No one, I'm sure you found this in your work too, no one of us can expect to know everything we need to know about the various components of fundraising and marketing and the legal principles governing a nonprofit organization and technology. Nobody can. And if we suffer under the illusion that because we're the boss, we should have all the answers, um, that's, we're doomed. Rather, rather, if we think of ourselves as the convener of experts, then we can learn from a diversity of people with a diversity of skill sets and perspectives. I guess how that applies to your earlier points, too, in terms of how we attract and retain talent with diverse strengths and, and ec expertise certainly our board recruitment, volunteer recruitment. Um, right. I guess you're encouraging folks to get out and to know their colleagues in the community or what are other ways you found to create this collaborative community that you describe? Well, uh, without wanting to restate what I just suggested, I think it begins um, uh, with what I consider to be the most effective attribute of, of effective leaders, which is humility which is the, the, the willingness to say, I think I'm right, but I might be wrong. Interesting. And therefore, yes, I need to find the people, whether as potential employees, we're always hiring, even if we don't have any job openings. We need to always be hiring, looking for the people we can bring on board when we're able to do so. And I believe the same thing is true about governance and volunteers. Uh, let me make 
explicit what I think people understand. We need diversity in our boards. Diversity includes gender, ethnicity, zip codes, but we also need a diversity of skill sets right. and, and talents and connections. Um, uh, address books, what we used to call Rolodex. <laughs> right. um, and, um, and we do that. And if we are serious about it, going back to pink, if we are then prepared to provide autonomy in the course of this work, then we can in fact build these kind of collaborative communities that in my estimation uh, place us at a far higher plane um, than simply plodding along doing the, the, the usual and customary. We only grow with that first rate professional and volunteer cadre that we, we spoke about earlier. That's excellent how you've given, I think, our listeners conversations that they should start back in the staff meetings and the board meetings with their colleagues. Uh, indeed, you inspire that kind of topical exploration that so many of our nonprofit organizations need. Um, how we could unpack any one of these topics into a feature-length episode. So uh, I'm grateful you have attacked each one of them uh, with great insight. Any other final kind of words of wisdom uh, you, you could, I know, go on for many areas of information, sure. but I wonder as we wrap up, are there any things you would want to add? Well, I, I, I would like to perhaps uh, one more time um, uh, raise this issue of the role of humility in effective leadership. Yeah, great um, point. For a very, very, very long time, and still in our day, humility has sadly been confused with weakness. A humble leader is, is a weak leader, is not decisive, is afraid of her own shadow, is reticent. And that is not the humility that I believe in at all. Right. I believe, counterintuitive as this may sound, that only confident and competent leaders can afford to be humble. I have to have the confidence in my own judgment to be able to say, I do not know. I have to be comfortable in my own skin by saying, I need to bring experts around the table. I have to not worry that um, people are going to look at me as somehow substandard or not rising to the level of the executive if I say we need a consultant, an outsider, a coach, a guide. The reality is humility allows us to ask hard questions without the presupposition that we have all the answers. This is not weakness. It's not, as several observers of this issue have observed, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, allowing us to, um, to learn from those around us. That's not a sign of weak leadership. That's the embodiment of strength that we need to have the impact in our organizations that our donors, our board members, our volunteers want us to have. So I'm a big proponent of humility correctly understood, not misunderstood or distorted 
correctly understood as the essence of effective leadership. And I don't think it's too early, even if you are just beginning a career in nonprofit, to think about these things. This is complicated because you need to perform, you need to show your ability. This is a particularly complicated issue. Right. Many times for women as they climb the ladder, but complexity notwithstanding, the value of humility as a tool for effective leadership cannot, in my estimation, be be understated. Wonderfully put. Uh, an appropriate and powerful kind of closing statement, Hal. I'm grateful for that. Um, you have given us two authors, Daniel Pink and Peter Drucker, that we could probably put any of their work up as a best book selection. But I would I'll agree. Give you, I'll give you one more shot. Is there another book or would you like to list one of theirs as your featured recommendation? I would like to feature authors, not books. Got it. It's okay with you as I've done. So for example, Jim Collins, who famously wrote Good to Great, um, authored another book, a 36 page monograph called Good to Great in the Social Sector. Yes, indeed. In which, he tried, yep. in which he tried to take um, the principles he learned from studying corporate America and apply them where they fit uh, to the social sector, the nonprofit world. There's right. a lot of nuggets in this book. Uh, one other author generally who I, 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 I like and I think has some good stuff to say, and it's not heady and tedious, it's the work of Patrick Lencioni. Indeed. Uh, who's done a number of, of things, including uh, one of, I guess, my favorite in, in his oeuvre is Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And um, a really important work that helps us understand where team building goes wrong sometimes. So, um, you know, I could keep going. Uh, the <laughs> academic good. in me is coming out, yes, but nobody, nobody wants a full reading list. Just a couple of good things to think about. You've given some golden nuggets among your reading list. And I've got several on my, on my bookshelf and I'm sure our listeners can add them if they don't already have them. So Hal, thank you very much for your time and conversation uh, we'll certainly list many of your uh, wise advice on our show notes. And I guess we'll put your your website up there. Anywhere else you'd like to send people to find out more about the good work you're doing? Well, the website is leadershipforimpact.com. And uh, if you'll post it, then they'll be able to do it. My contact information is there. I'd be delighted uh, to be of assistance uh, if I can. And I, I thank you, Patton, for a really well-conducted interview and for the work that I know you're doing, which is just dedicated to raising the bar in our field uh, for the good work that we're all uh, doing. So thank you. That was my pleasure. Thank you for being part of it. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Hal. Uh, I certainly took multiple notes. I've got new books to add to my library. So if you are trying to capture those as well, know that they are available on the show notes associated with this particular podcast episode and many other resources and ideas that you can find on Hal's website, which we have, of course, linked to uh, in addition to the specific resources and books and other things. 
Think about what he said. How do you attract and retain talent? What are you doing to improve the partnership with your board? And how can you assure that you and your organization are more collaborative in the community that you are trying to serve? Thanks, as always, for listening. I hope you'll share this episode with someone who is also on the path to nonprofit leadership. And if you haven't already, please subscribe so we can make sure that you receive all of our podcasts, not just the weekly episodes coming out every Thursday, but also bonus episodes that we're preparing uh, literally every month. Thanks for the good work you're doing in the nonprofit sector. Keep it up, and we'll continue to provide resources and ideas so that you can do that work even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.